Welcome to the Reporter Podcast with Bo Berman. Hey everybody, welcome back to this episode of Reporter after the holiday break here. It's the podcast that delves into the minds and lives of broadcast news reporters and anchors, delivering a behind-the-scenes look at their careers, methods, best practices, and personal stories from the trenches of journalism. And today we have a very exciting guest, Stephen Fabian of Inside Edition, who also happens to be from uh, my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Stephen, thank you so much for uh, making the time to come on to Reporter today. Thanks, both. Thanks for having me. Love, love uh, connecting with another person from Pittsburgh. Yeah, you know, I think people from people from Pittsburgh are instant best friends. I say that all the time. Uh, I live here in New York, and man, just last night I saw a guy. Uh, I was out in the East Village, and I saw a guy wearing a Steelers hoodie or something, and you know, I just like passed him in the street, and we high fived and kept going. You know, <laughs> it's just like Pittsburgh people are so uh, happy to meet each other. So it's nice. Yes, it's so true. And there, there's like, it's, it always feels like there's one or maybe two degrees of separation between um, oh my you know, people in Pittsburgh. You know, everyone somehow, I'm sure if we looked into it, we probably oh, have yeah. 35 friends in common, you know, who we just don't realize that, yep. that we have. I have a huge family in Pittsburgh. I have like 26 first cousins. And so, because my dad has 10 brothers and sisters. So, um, I feel like everybody in Pittsburgh knows at least one of my uncles, aunts, or cousins. It's like, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's really like that. So a lot of pride uh, for Pittsburghers. But for everyone else listening who's not from Pittsburgh, um, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the, uh, the, the more right. reporter podcast uh, style of conversation. So you um, are, are a national correspondent for Inside Edition. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. Inside Edition, which, you know, has been on now for... 30 years, which is crazy to think wow. about. Yeah. Um, I think 31. I think the show launched in 89. And um, it has taken on many forms over the decades. I think in the beginning, in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, you know, the show was doing sort of 60-minute style pieces, like eight-minute, nine-minute stories, maybe three per episode. And I think it 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 shows sort of the strengths of the show that they knew when to adapt and when to kind of change formats. Cause if you look at the show now, it's, you know, a, a long piece on our show now is like three minutes, you know? So yeah. um, it really is fast paced. We whip around, we cover everything under the sun um, and sort of this inside edition uh, style, um, which you may ask, well, what the heck is that? Um, it's it's challenging at times because you kind of have to cover the big news, cover the big stories, but find a way to do them a little bit differently, like find a, a side door into the story or find a, a different tangential sort of way to, to cover. For example, the impeachment hearings. I was there in D.C. Uh, when those were ongoing, you know, last I'm trying to think of when I was even there two weeks ago um, for the for the first, you know, four or five days. And we can't report what CBS and NBC and ABC is reporting in the news of the day, the, just the who, what, when, why, where, because viewers will have already seen that on, say, the CBS Evening News, and we come on right after the CBS Evening News. So it presents a challenge uh, for us because you need to kind of find it a, a, a different way to cover those impeachment hearings. So we did a whole story about this infamous candy drawer that exists inside the hearing room that all the oh, senators right. 
kind of crowd around and we found, you know, and, and, and we actually got some great interviews for it. We ran into Alyssa Milano, who was there, and she witnessed the senator. She was in the room witnessing them eating the candy. And so it was like a, it was an interesting thing to know, you know, that these guys are in there deciding the fate of our country while eating, you know, Hershey's you know, with almonds or whatever, or M&M's or whatever else. Um, but it's also funny that it's like, it's, it's been there for so many years. It's part of, it's part of that room. All the senators know about it. We interviewed Chip Reed, who's been working on Capitol Hill for CBS for like, you know, two decades. And he said, you know, this candy drawer story goes back and yada, yada, yada. And um, it's the senator from Pennsylvania's desk now. And he gets all the stuff from Hershey because he's the senator from Pennsylvania. So you, you kind of learn something. Um, but at times it can be, it can be challenging because you're thinking to yourself, well, how, well we got to find a different way to cover this. We have to find sort of the inside edition angle on a story. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And that does sound um, tough. Um, especially, you know, like you said, the fact that if you, if you really don't execute that properly, you know, the entire nation who's watching, you know, the network is going to know because they would see, you know, the same, the same information two times in a row. So, um, right. or, you know, right. on the same evening. So it's, it's not, it's not like it's going to fly under the radar. I mean, you know, most people are going to see that and think, well, I just saw this, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We can't sort of repeat the same uh, uh, story. And, it, you know, it's nice that we're on right after the evening news in many markets. Like I know here in New York, we're on at seven o'clock on, on um, the CBS affiliate there. Here in Pittsburgh, I think we're on the ABC affiliate right after the news, right after World News Tonight. So like those are great time slots. And Inside Edition has held those time slots for so many years. And we still get really great ratings. Um, I think something like four million people tune into the show every day, um, which is which is awesome. But you can't you can't repeat the story, and I think our viewers our viewers look to us for that sort of side story, that sort of behind the scenes, what's really going on. Here's something else that's interesting. Here's a secret we found about this. Um, that's what they look to our show for, and um, it's fun, but sometimes it's challenging. Yeah. So who, who do you view as, you know, if, if you work for CBS News, like someone who, who does work for CBS News might, you know, sort of view their, their main competitor as, as, as a correspondent for ABC News or NBC News. As someone who, who is a correspondent for Inside Edition, who, would you, who is like your, your arch rival, you know, so to speak, or who, who's the direct rival? Uh, who are you competing you know, against, would you say? It's funny, the, the, you know, you think about it. There used to be so many of these sort of, they're called news magazines, news magazine shows. When you think back, there was hard copy. There was a current affair. There was something called, um, Inside Edition produced it too. Uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the name. Some other sort of crime-based sort of story. And those all died. Inside Edition's like the, the last standing news magazine show um, of its kind, because we don't necessarily, some people who aren't familiar with the show will say to me, oh, so you do a lot of celebrity stuff. You guys do like the Hollywood scene. And I'm like, no, that's really not what Inside Edition is at all. I don't interview celebrities. It's just not my thing. That's Entertainment Tonight. That's E, that's Access Hollywood. That's sort of their thing. And they are all competitors with each other for sure. Inside Edition is sort of the only remaining news magazine where we do cover what's happening in Hollywood, but that's not our main beat. We also do 
you know, news and we're covering this coronavirus and we're covering the impeachment and we're covering a you know, murder mystery. So it's weird that we're like kind of competing with everybody. Like sometimes Dateline and or Dr. Phil will get the big interview that we're looking for. Or sometimes we're competing with ABC News and Good Morning America and the Today Show over big interviews of, of you know, people, um, you know, who are in the news for whatever reason. So sometimes it's the network. Sometimes it's other shows. Like I, I mentioned, Dr. Phil, sometimes it's um, even locals, you know, depending on the markets. If, if it's like a story that's breaking, say, in Connecticut, we were just covering the unfortunate story of Jennifer Dulos. You, you may be familiar with it. She uh, has been missing now for a year. She's presumed dead. Her husband was wanted for murder. He just committed suicide. Um, and the And the locals have been covering that story out there, the local news people every day they know all the ins and outs and you know oftentimes we'll just have to sort of fly in helicopter in do a stand-up do a couple interviews and and get out of there and try to get that on the air for that day's show um but they're the ones who know all the people sometimes so sometimes we're competing with uh local markets depending on the story so it's really the show it's 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 not necessarily an easy um, show to to pump out every day. We have incredibly early deadlines. Um, 3 p.m. is our is our feed time every day that we have to hit. And so, like my friends ask me all the time, they go, "So, what are you doing tomorrow? What what story are you covering tomorrow?" I go, "Dude, I I don't know. I have no clue. I don't know until like three seconds before. I can't tell you how many times. And this blows people's minds. I can't tell you how many times somebody will come to my desk say if I'm working in the office." and say, oh, hey, you know, your live shot's up in three minutes. And I'll say, wait, what? What live shot? And they'll be like, oh, you know, the interview with the family who has the missing children from the cruise ship, and they can't find them, and then we finally booked the dad, and he's ready in, in three minutes. And I'm like, wait, I don't even know anything about this story. And so I quickly have to, you know, learn the facts, find out what questions I need to ask, work with the producer. We really, it is like an incredible crash every day to make that show happen. And a lot, it's just like, you know, it's all hands on deck. Everybody there is working to pump out that, that show and get that, that day's show done. But oftentimes like planning for, I'm I'm sorry, there's a big siren out my window here. I'll move away from the window. Um, Oftentimes (laughs) there is a bit of a lag in planning for say the next day, you know, like I'm sitting here thinking, Oh, the Iowa caucus is tomorrow. Are we going to go? Like, somebody going to send me, am I going to get a call here in an hour thinking like, you know, you better get to Iowa tomorrow. So sometimes the planning for the future kind of thing is uh, tricky for the show. Cause we're all, we're all hands on deck getting that day's show uh, off the ground. So it's really a, <laughs> it's like a beehive in that, in that newsroom every day. And especially between the hours of one and three, when all the pieces are being edited and crashed and I'm voicing stuff over, or if I'm in the field or on the road, I'm, feeding back my material it's a uh, it's it's high intensity for for a good portion of the day that's for sure yeah yeah that sounds really stressful I always um as a reporter hated whenever I didn't have um the time to prepare for an interview because it's it can be embarrassing you know if you're like uh, you know you're just trying to you know you're like a person in the dark you know trying to feel your way through if you haven't prepared and and you can actually stumble your way into some embarrassing questions if, if you don't you know, you should always, you should always pretty much have a, you know, it's like a lawyer, like at least have some notion of the answer before you even ask the question. 
And if you're going like now, now how many kids do you have that are missing? You know, you, you can't ask that yep. you know, because you'll, you'll offend that father and he'll just, you know, end the interview or something. So it's, it's tough. Yep. Yep. And, and, and that happens. That really happens. I forget what we were doing uh, recently. I, I was doing an interview with a woman and it was about her family history. It had something to do with when those SUVs uh, were shot up and, and people died was very sad in Mexico. Remember, there was like crossfire. It had something to do with drug cartels. This was yeah. And I remember interviewing a woman who used to live in that community um, down there where uh, the, the people were from, right? And I had, and she had a backstory about the community, and we were learning more about just what life is like there for them. And I had asked her like halfway through the interview and I'm like, and so what is the relationship with you and your dad now? How are things with you and your dad? She was like, well, he died in 1985. And I was just like, Oh my God. Like, and that was, that was the thing yeah. that I, I was so embarrassed and sorry um, to, to this woman. And I felt terrible, but uh, you know, that kind of happens when you get thrown into the fire like that. But then there is times, there are times where it is kind of nice because you ask sort of generic questions and you, you're sort of feeling your way out like you described. And oftentimes you'll get good bites because you're asking the simple questions that need to be asked to tell the story. You're not getting too complex. And sometimes simple answers, simple Q&As are what you need in a two-minute and 30-second story. You know, you can't yes. get too deep. So sometimes, it, sometimes it's a benefit, too. That's a really good point, actually. And I think, I think there's actually some younger reporters who sometimes uh, don't realize that or sort of overthink that. And they'll, you know, try to come up with these super complex questions for a big interview, almost to like make themselves look impressive or just, you know, kind of signal that they've done the research, which I get that, that feeling of wanting to do that. But I think you're exactly right. Like if, you, if, if, the, if the question is too complex, then they'll go back and try to log that tape and think, well, shit, I didn't even ask them, you know, any of the basic questions. So even though I know the answers, we don't have them on tape saying them, you know, so it's, it's like, right. That, that can be a, a trap. Yeah, totally. I think it's important to keep in mind that your viewer doesn't know the story as well as you do. <laughs> and just because you know it well, that doesn't mean it's going to translate um, in your piece, in your script. I think you need to boil things down. I think it's, it says something to keep some, keep it simple. Um, you know, I started in my career working for channel one news, which no longer exists, but was for 20 years, the sort of news show that was shown in high schools and junior highs around the country. Um, I think 6 million kids used to watch the show every day. Anderson Cooper was on that show, Maria Menounos, Lisa Ling, all kinds of people who are on CBS news now and APC and all kinds of other places great place to start my career um but it was also it, it sort of ingrained in me a script writing and a, and a telling of a story because uh, and, and what am i trying to say here telling a story simply because our viewers were like 14 year old kids you know and we had to break things down and explain things in a language that they could understand and i think that translates to just really all news you, you know because you have to assume your viewer doesn't know anything about this story, even if they watched the show from the day before and there was a, this is a follow-up from the day before's piece. Uh, you have to just break it down and boil it down. And yeah, those long winding questions, <laughs> they get cut out of our pieces because we don't have time for a, a 20 second question in our show, you know, 
our, our questions that we use from our reporters and correspondents are, are usually the short ones. So, yeah. um, yeah, that is good advice for sure. Yeah. So what is life like as a, you know, national TV correspondent who's living in New York City? Um, meaning, like, do you, do you get recognized on the streets or, you know, um, what, what is that like? You know, it's, it's, well, I think in New York specifically, people don't care so much. <laughs> people in New York are so uh, immune and used to seeing like super famous people just walking around in the street and everybody like leaves people alone and keeps to themselves. So in New York, not so much. Um, but in other parts of the country, yeah, for sure. People will, I don't know, they don't necessarily know oh, you're Stephen Fabian, they, they might say you're Inside Edition guy, or I know you from Inside Edition, or whatever, you know. Um, interestingly, we have an incredible audience on YouTube. Believe it or not, our YouTube page, and you can fact check this, um, I, I wouldn't exactly quote me on it, but I know we're like in the top 100 of all YouTube channels, like in all of YouTube, like in the world. Yeah. We have an incredible audience on YouTube, and it's all kids. It's like 14 and 15 and 16-year-old kids. They love the Inside Edition stories <laughs> to the point that they don't even know that it's a TV show. I was in Iowa not long ago for, uh, oh, man, the unfortunate story of Molly Tibbetts. If you remember, she was a college-aged jogger who yeah. uh, was missing, later found dead, and oh, it's just a tragic story. But I was at her vigil in the parking lot and I was talking to members of the community uh, just about Molly. And um, I had my inside inside edition uh, mic flag out, you know, on my microphone. And these like kids came over to me and they're like, oh man, you work for inside edition. And I was like, yeah. And they go, do YouTube show. Right. And I said, I said, I I guess maybe I do. I said, you know, it's a TV show too. It's actually on TV. And they had no clue because they only watch it on YouTube. I was just in, DC and this this kid this young kid really smart kid 14 year old kid who was there for the impeachment hearings his godmother brought him across the country so they got they got tickets from their senator and they came from California and Washington state and she wanted him to sort of be there in the room and witness history and this kid was a huge politics buff really really smart kid um he saw me in the hallways and he goes oh I got a vision and then I ran into him later and I said can I ask you something I said where do you eat where do you watch the show? Is it on YouTube? He goes, yeah, it's on YouTube. I go, did you know it's a TV show? He's like, no, I had no clue. <laughs> so <laughs> it's funny. Fun. And you know, so that, that's been happening more and more that young kids are recognizing us because they watch on YouTube. Cause really like I always say, who's the audience for inside edition. It's like moms and aunts. Like I always yeah. joke to like my friends in Pittsburgh I'm like, oh, yeah, your mom or your aunt watches the show. I'm like, hands down, like, for sure, your grandma. And that's totally, totally the case. I get feedback from all my friends about, oh, my grandma says she watches you every day. My aunt Sue watches you every day, blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> but now it's funny that also, like, 14, like, junior high school kids are watching Inside Edition. It's kind of it's cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, that's, that's hilarious. And that's, that's such a, you know, I, I, it's such a great anecdote because it's just, you know, I think we see stuff like that more and more where you're just, um, yeah, it's just, you know, the generational gap there and, and the, the, the means of consumption for media. But I want to ask you, I mean, what do you think that says about the direction of the broadcast industry? You know, the fact that the kids are, are consuming this through YouTube, 
you know, that now YouTube has something called YouTube TV that people can subscribe to instead of cable. Um, I just feel like we're in this weird place right now where TV, like actual TV is still very lucrative, right? Like advertising dollars and political campaigns will still spend there. But by the same token, like the, the people who are going to be 30 years old, 10 years from now, or in 15 years, maybe is more like it. They, they're not watching on TV. You know, as you just said, they're watching on YouTube or they're fooling around on TikTok. So, you know, from your perspective, I mean, what, how do we handle that? You know, obviously that's probably above our pay grade, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting because we're in some sort of transitionary time right now where I think everybody's trying to figure out that question. I think, you know, you're seeing the networks have these 24 hour streaming channels. I don't know. And that's all like web oriented. I don't know if they're being watched because they're geared for screens that are still TV screen sized. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so CBSN, for example, that's, that's CBS News's um, 24 hour streaming service. It's good. I watch it while I'm at work. Um, and they're across the street and I know some folks over there, but it's still like a TV show, you know, it's still, you know, you're, you're, it's still a screen that looks like your flat screen TV in your living room. Yeah. And I just don't know when we're all on our phones nonstop that a 24 hour streaming thing that looks like a TV show is going to fly. You know, I don't know that that's the future. I don't know that that's where we're headed. Now, I know there's some interesting things happening with um, Quibi, which has not launched yet. Um, and I think they're going to be producing content that is just geared for your phone. And I think that's maybe where we'll start to see some of this go towards as things get ironed out about how to make a successful streaming news source. I think it needs to be geared for your phone. I think it needs to be something that you can watch while you're in the back of a cab or you're on the subway or you're at your desk and it's on your phone, just like Instagram's on your phone, just like Twitter is on your phone. It needs to be geared for that size screen. And I think and we could be headed in that direction. I mean, I think, I don't know that the, that the news shows the 6.30 news shows are going to die off. I don't think those morning morning shows, the Today Show and Good Morning America, I don't think those are going anywhere. I think those are safe and, like you mentioned, also lucrative. Um, I just think that, especially as older viewers, the older generations sort of go away, and now people who are watching the news, um, who have had phones and social media and everything their entire lives, as they become the primary viewers, I think we'll see even more the switch to to things things that are geared towards towards the phone and towards the computer. I mean, I, I was going to say computer, but I don't even think computer. I think everything's going to be geared towards uh, your phone screen in the next five to ten years. Yeah, which which is interesting. I mean, I you know I don't know that. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of Inside Edition and its longevity. You know, the show gets such good ratings now. I mean, it, this show is in my mind, pretty safe. You know, the, the ratings hold up. Um, I can't see a show like ours going away anytime soon. Um, so I don't know. I, it's a tough question. It, it, the, the next 10 years will surely be interesting. Um, and, and that, and on that front, because 
who knows really where we're headed and you're right. It's, it's somebody's going to figure it out. Maybe, maybe it should be me and you. Maybe we should figure this thing out. Uh-huh. Make the big buck. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Um, so the thing you mentioned though, is, what is it? Quibi? How do you spell that? Q U I B I. I know they're like still sort of in their hiring phase and getting stuff launched, but I think they're, their thing is like that they're going to be producing content in short bursts for for your phone, you know, nice. to watch on your phone. Um, have you, have you seen and even the, to watch. Uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, have you seen this, uh, this NBC LX? No, but I've heard about it. Yeah, it seemed, it, it reminds me of the, the Quibi concept a little bit. Um, it's just like NBC has hired a, a slew of, uh, journalists to kind of produce direct to social media or direct to web content. And, and it's like in the nascent stages right now. But um, one of my friends, Noah Pransky, um, who was actually episode, the, the guest of the first episode of this podcast, um, works for them now after like 20 years in local news. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. You know, a, a lot of experimental stuff out there right now. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows? I mean, it's a, Ugh, it's a big wild world out there on the internet, of course. So it should be interesting to see what happens here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. I'm pulling up the um, the the YouTube page for Inside Edition, and first of all, um, you're right. I mean, seven point one two million subscribers. First of all, which is a is just a gigantic number. And then I'm just reading the the, <laughs> the first five stories, and it doesn't. Now that I look at the titles, it just like doesn't surprise me that the you know that a lot of teenagers are into this i mean number one is just the first you know four hours ago was posted 13 year old cries as he's surprised with dog from late dad so i mean it's a story literally about a teenager and then it's you know pets something a lot of people relate to right and then woman right. who falls into ice cold ice cold water is body shamed which you know i mean bullying and and you know that sort of thing right and what's interesting about those two that you pulled, that ice one is from Friday's show. The other one, I think, is just a web piece that our web team produced. Like most of the content from our show, the, the broadcast show, then becomes a YouTube um, video. But then we have a whole web department that's like producing their own content and voicing over stuff and putting stories together. And they, those stories will go to the YouTube page and also go to um, the InsideEdition.com page. But um, just the sheer number of videos that we're putting out every day is impressive. And what's even more impressive is this is so hard to believe when I started at inside edition, which was in September of 2014, we had two people working in the web department. There was no YouTube page. There was just to get my story on the web. I used, I used to have to like ask and put in a request and be like, what do you mean? It's not online. Yeah. And I would, it's just amazing the growth that has occurred in our web division in the past five years. And the folks over there have done a really, really, really great job. It just used to boggle my mind. Like we've worked on a story all day. Some story coordinator or AP at the show has spent weeks trying to book somebody. We've traveled, we've shot an interview, we've hired crews, we've edited it. We've, you know, put time and man hours into producing this piece and then like it's not online and we can't promote it and it airs once at seven o'clock across the country and then it's never to be seen again like what what is that you know yeah they got smart really quick and man 
they've done a, a great job because just, yeah, you're right. Look at some of those view counts on those YouTube stories and man, they're through the roof. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy that that YouTube page didn't even exist in, in 2014. I mean, that is, that is really amazing to me. That, that is, that's just nuts. Um, yeah, that used yeah. to drive me so, so crazy with even local news where you talk about all the money and manpower and work that goes into a story and we're going to treat it as if like, Hey, if you didn't catch it at, at, at 11, then screw you. You know, it's like, no, no, no. You, yeah. We need to be making it as widely available as possible. Cause the other thing with the web is there's nothing to lose. If you put it up and it gets 10 views, fine. Or, or it could get 10 right. million. So there, there's really nothing to lose, you know? Um, was always yeah. One of my, one of my favorite ones that goes, and it's funny cause like certain things, like you mentioned, will, will blow up on the YouTube page more than others, right? If there's like news of the day, sort of breaking news kind of stuff that's going to change in like a couple hours, I don't think our web team will even put that on YouTube because it kind of becomes obsolete almost instantly. Right. Um, but like I did a story about, it's a really, it was a really interesting story about um, flushable wipes, um, you know, like Lysol wipes or whatever that you use to clean your counters or your bathrooms or whatever. And how they're, they say flushable, but you're really not supposed to flush them. They, they wreck, they wreck uh, havoc on the, the sewage system and water treatment plants. It's amazing the money that is spent on filtering out those wipes from like a water treatment plant. I went to this water treatment plant in Brooklyn, and it is all day, 24 hours a day, filtering out these wipes. They create these things called fatbergs that like live in the sewers and claw. It's like basically a giant ball of wipes that will clog up the sewer systems and whatever. And it's kind of icky. The story was like kind of gross, you know, but also informational because we, we kind of said like we, we talked to somebody from, say, Good Housekeeping or something who told us like, here are the many things that people flush down the toilet that they shouldn't be flushing down the toilet. And then we showed sort of this gross video from the water treatment plant. And I'm like raking through this big mound of, of flushable wipes. But that story on Inside Edition has, I don't know, on, on the YouTube page has like millions of views, like 14 million views or something. I, we could probably look it up and, and see. Yeah. Um, but like, that's a perfect kind of story on that will, that will blow up on the YouTube page because it's informational, but it's also kind of gross. And uh, the, visual, the visuals are really astonishing. So... Yes, yeah, I just I just pulled it up and it has uh, 3.5 million views in the last nine months. Oh, okay, so 3.5. I will no, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot. Uh, that's a lot of views. I mean, but I mean, there, you know, the the by comparison, the Inside Edition story about uh, right below it, which comes up, is uh, hotel bathrooms may not be as clean as you wish they were. Nine million views, you know, since two years right. ago. So it's just. All of these things are, are just totally, you know, uh, could detox foot baths actually remove toxins, you know, 5.7 million. I mean, those are just crazy numbers, actually. Yeah. Uh, for for yep. news content, right? Because, you know, Justin Bieber can put a video up and it'll get 20 million in a day. But news content typically is not doing that well. So I think you're absolutely right. It's that hybrid of being news, like, you know, infotainment kind of thing or, or like news yeah. and news type of deal. Oh man, that's a that's a phrase right out of my EP's uh, vocabulary. News you can use. We love we love, love those kind of segments. We really do a lot of them, um, yeah. and they do well. They do well for us for sure. That's awesome. 
So uh, let's let's focus on um, let's switch gears and, and talk about. I mean, I you know, frankly, I'm curious about um, your your career and sort of your upbringing. So did you um, what you know? What did you want to be when when you were a kid? When you were growing up, did you always want to be uh, an Inside Edition uh, reporter, or what, what did you uh, aspire to be? <laughs> well, if I'm being dead honest, when I was 14 years old, I was 100% sure I was going to be a pro wrestler. So uh, that didn't work out when I realized I was only ever going to be like five foot nine. So I had to sort of dash those dreams. But um, <laughs> I uh, I always had a video camera and stuff and was always sort of making making movies and doing crazy stuff and editing things sort of in the camera um, growing up. And then when I got to high school, I went to Plum High School and um, we had a we we have a really great television productions department at Plum High School. And we have been doing there for now 20 plus years, a telethon for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, um, where we raise money and whatever else. In my year, I was the host, one of the hosts, and we raised something like $74,000 at this telethon for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And at the time, that was a national record for um, you know, a donation from a district or whatever. Wow. So Doing that, and, and that was a live show. I hosted it. And it was five and a half hours or six and a half hours with guests coming on and uh, edited together pieces that we would talk, toss to and have all kinds of little skits and stuff. That was a challenge with a completely student crew, um, and we were only the second year <clears throat> that it was that we were doing it there at Plum. And they've been like, like I said, they've been doing it every year ever since. Next year, I think they'll cra- cross over uh, one million dollars total after all these years donated to make wish which is an amazing accomplishment the kids take so much pride in and i go back every year as as a guest um so that's sort of where i got my like start um hosting little shows for for plum high school's television uh department hosting that telethon i remember i interviewed steve blass um at the telethon and you know, I was excited to interview him, World Series champion, Pirates broadcaster, that kind of thing. So I had done my research and had some, some pretty cool questions to ask him. And um, when the telephone was wrapped or his segment was wrapped, I remember like turning the corner and overhearing him say to my TV teacher, Mr. Barat, who I'm still very, very close with, he said to him, Steve Blass was like, you know, tell your interviewer, whoever he was, you did a really great job, man, he did a good job. And I thought, Oh, maybe I could like make this into something. <laughs> maybe I could do this as my career. So that's when I sort of came up with that goal that like I wanted to sort of be in broadcast TV. Um, so then I did that in college. I had my own show. I had my own radio show. I went to Allegheny College, uh, north of Pittsburgh, there in Meadville, and um, you know continued to learn how to edit and shoot and write and produce and all that stuff. And then I graduated college, and man, that was a scary time because I always refer to this era of my life as when I had seven low-paying jobs. Um, I worked in a baby clothes store. I was a bartender. I was an MC for an indoor soccer team. I hosted a web show about Philly nightlife uh, and bars and, and nightlife in the Philadelphia area. I hosted another show about men, like about it was like guys talking about dating and like dating struggles and stuff like that. I did another show that I um, 
would go to junkets and interview celebrities, but I was living in Philadelphia and traveling to New York and I wasn't getting paid for this job. So I was essentially losing money because I'd have to like pay to get on the train. Um, so I basically took anything that anybody would hire me to do just so I could develop my reel and, and keep that going all the while doing these other odd jobs just to pay the rent. Um, and I was living in Philly versus New York just cause I had some family there and it was easier to be there and be close to New York without having to like pay New York prices. Um, but then the big, the big get was channel one news when that, when that, when they came calling and believe it or not, this story I tell all the time, I always wanted to work for channel one because it's such a great place for somebody in their early twenties. You get such great exposure you get to travel the world, really. I mean, I went to Germany for Channel One. I went to the Dominican Republic. I went to Mexico a bunch of times, discovered the drug war. I did so many just in-depth, long, like 10-minute pieces for, for Channel One at age 24, 25, which was amazing. Um, how I got that job, I emailed info at channelone.com. It was like a generic email address. Wow. I didn't know if they were hiring. I didn't know if they were looking for anybody. I just gave it a shot. I used to do this kind of stuff all the time and, you know, put my resume, put a link to my demo reel, some photos, whatever else. And thinking, you know, what do I have to lose? And then I don't remember a week, couple of weeks later, I got a call from somebody at NBC news because channel one was being produced out of 30 rock. Uh, it, it was like a, it was like an arm of NBC news for a short amount of time. And I got a call from somebody from within 30 rock. And they're like, can you be here next week? We need to, you need to interview with like nine different people. You're going to come in and take an editing test. You're going to take a current events quiz. We're going to shoot something with you on camera. And I was like, like five days later or seven days later, I was interviewing with the head of talent at NBC news and all these other sort of big wigs at, at NBC. It was really overwhelming. Wow. Um, and then to make, to, on top of that, I thought it went sort of well, you know, I don't know that I crushed the, the, the current events quiz. Um, cause I wasn't necessarily like doing news. I was doing television, but I wasn't necessarily like in the news world in that era of my life. Um, so I didn't have like all the confidence in the world coming out of the interview, but I thought like, okay, I think they liked me. I think they're maybe unsure. I followed up with everybody. And then three days later, they, I got a response that said, we like you, but we want to make sure you can do the job. So can you produce for us two pieces? Uh, in the style of Channel One News, any topic you pick, and you know, with a week's deadline or something. I didn't have any gear. I didn't have a camera. You know, I had to borrow all this stuff, sort of put my life on hold. All these other odd jobs and stuff I was doing, I kind of just had to press pause and um, produce these pieces and uploaded them to YouTube and sent them in and thought, okay, well, I've done the best possible job I could do. I tried as hard as I could and. If I don't get it, I don't get it. But if I do, then awesome. And then I was working in the baby clothes store a couple of days later, maybe a week or so later, when I got the call and they offered me a job, and I was just like ecstatic, as you can imagine, because uh, I had been really grinding those past, it was like two and a half, three years, where I was really trying to get something full time and doing all these crazy jobs and being able to like focus in on one thing at that point that was a huge moment. I really felt like, okay, I've, I've like, I've done it now. Now I'm in. Uh, yeah. So that was sort of how it all began. 
Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I don't every every time you say baby clothes store, I just crack up. I don't know why. It's just such a funny uh, early job for. It was a cool store. So so friends of mine um, opened a husband and wife. They opened this store in Philadelphia that sold really high end baby clothes and strollers and rockers. And, oh, okay. You know, it was like really cool stuff. Like they, this yeah. one brand we used to sell would take like old school concert tees like Rolling Stones tees from like the seventies and cut them down and make like baby shirts out of them and sell them for like a hundred dollars. And people were coming in there and buying them. It was nuts. Um, but it was a fun, it was fun to work there. It was cool. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That, that makes more sense. Um, so, so, uh, what year would that have been when you, when you secured the job at, at channel one news? Approximately? That, that was 2008. Okay. Okay. 2008. I was there for, three years, three seasons. And then I went to Arizona and worked for a show called right this minute that is still on. It's another nationally syndicated show. And I helped launch that show. Uh, I was on episode one of, of, of that show, which was a very interesting uh, process. And that show is doing well too. It's a, it's a successful show. It's a show about viral videos sort of before they go viral where the hosts sit around a, a, a table and, one one of the hosts per segment will like have all the details on this particular video, whether that is a sports video, a gross out video, a, a action adventure video, a funny video, a prank video, a news video, like literally anything. Um, we'll have all the details on that particular video, show it to the other hosts for the first time. They're seeing it all for the first time. And then sort of have this candid conversation where you're asking questions and just commenting and reacting to the video. Uh, so, so like the viewer is seeing the video for the first time, but also the hosts are seeing the video for the first time. And then you kind of edit it down into this minute 30 little piece of um, sort of organic reaction to this video and also information about, about those particular videos. And, and truly that, that show was so impressive because our whole team was dedicated to finding the, these videos before they go viral and they'd be on our show and then two days later, they'd be on the Today Show and Good Morning America and all the other morning shows because that was like what we did. We, we, had, the, we had the ways, we had the systems down to find these videos first. And um, it was always impressive like, to see what would happen to these videos after they'd be on our show, where else they would land. And it was always the networks and other places. Um, so I was on that show for, for three years as well. Uh, and lived in Arizona, which was interesting. Uh, it was a, a fun time being out there. And then came back to inside or came back to New York uh, for Inside Edition in 2014. Nice, awesome. Um, and so let me ask you this: um, a lot of um, kids coming out of of college, um, myself included, take the take the route of of like like local news, you know, they, they think of a, they, they look for a local news station that's hiring somewhere across the country. And sometimes they relocate there. Um, you right. know, and, and sometimes they have to take a, a job as a waiter at a restaurant first and, and, and search and, you know, or take odd jobs, you know, whatever they may be. And, and then eventually they get a job in local news and, and you kind of took a different path. And so can you just talk about that a little bit of, you know, did you ever consider that local news route or, uh, you know, what led you to kind of hang on to those odd jobs and, and push for something more like national or, or, you know, I, I guess channel one is sort of in a league of its own, but 
you know, how did that come about? Yeah, you know, I never, I didn't really necessarily pursue local news stuff. I never saw it as like my dream or I never really wanted to do it, right? There was a time that I was trying to get a job in Erie doing sports for the one of the local stations up there and it didn't work out. And I just like, but I wasn't sure that I wanted it anyway. And I, I don't, I just kind of felt lukewarm about the whole thing. I didn't see myself doing, doing that. Um, and I think I just always kind of wanted to stay true to myself and be myself on the air, as opposed to being, here's a local news guy being a local news guy. Do you know what I'm, And that's, and that's not to, I mean, local news people are amazing and they, they do the hardest work. Um, and that's not to diminish what local news people do. I just didn't see myself doing that, you know, so I never yeah. sort of steered myself in that direction. Now, look, when I was 23, 24 and doing all those odd jobs and whatever else, if some local news station came calling and was like, you know, we have a job for you, I probably would have taken that job. Um, it just wasn't something that I was like going after. I wasn't yeah. seeking it out, yeah. you know? Um, and it, it, it sort of, I actually never even went into TV thinking I was going to do news. You know, I didn't, that wasn't necessarily my, my main function or goal in the, in the beginning. I was doing kind of hosting stuff and, you know, lighter things and whatever. But then once I got to channel one and started doing that, I'm like, Oh, I can do this. I can do this just the same as anybody else, but also be myself, um, you know, in the role on air, I can still be me while covering these news stories for channel one. And that's where I sort of feel like that was like my niche, right? Like I can, I can tell these stories in a relatable way. I can be a dude that you look like, looks like, Oh, I feel like I know that guy, or he's a guy I would like to, you know, have a beer with or whatever, you know, sort of be relatable, be myself without being like, and now I'm a news person and I'm talking to you like this, and this is, you know, uh, that's never really been my, my cup of tea. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't know how I sort of avoided it, but I did. And here I am. So I, it's, yeah. it's worked out. It's not that I would have, uh, would have been opposed to it. It's just not something I, I sought out. You know, right. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's very true. First of all, that, that you're right, that uh, you, you really, there's not an opportunity to reveal your personality very much in local news, unless you are, uh, a meteorologist, you know, a weather person, or if you're the sports right. person. And then even then, you know, there's only so much that, that you can go that, where you can color outside the lines. Um, and right. if you're a strictly news person, um, you know, people, friends of mine ask, I used to ask me this a lot, you know, kind of thing of, you know, you know, can you show more personality or, you know, that sort of thing, or, you know, how much personality are you allowed to show? And I would say, well, look, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of what we're covering are murders. So you, you can't, I mean, you're not going to be like laughing, or smiling or dancing. Right. I mean, so it's, it's very limited in what you can do. And, and, and you're right. You have that kind of news voice and, and that sort of thing. So uh, that can be tricky, but I, yeah, I found it interesting your path, your pathway, because um, it seems like it was really, it ended up, you know, hindsight's 2020, but it ended up sort of career defining or, or it puts some like, you know, sometimes the, the first role you take people really, will will judge you in a good way or bad way based on that role. And it just seems like it, it benefited you that you kind of took that that path. And so you didn't sort of get pegged 
or pigeonholed as, you know, oh, that, that's a local news guy. It was kind of this, this in-between area. And it just strikes me as something that may, you know, may or may not have. Obviously, you would know better than me, but it appears as though it may have, you know, kind of benefited you, benefited you on this uh, trajectory. Yeah, it worked out because, you know, like, for example, Channel One at that time, they weren't looking for anybody who, who had local news experience because they didn't want somebody to come in with those sort of local news, um, you know, tools and maybe habits. They kind of wanted somebody with like a clean slate that they could kind of mold into their style. And they liked my presence on camera from the reel and stuff that I, that I sent them. And so I kind of pitched that about me to them. I said, look, I can do the work. You guys like me on camera. You like my look, you like whatever, like the presence or whatever. And I know how to, and part of this job working for channel one was you had to shoot, edit, write and produce your own stuff. I used to travel by myself with my gear and shoot <laughs> and shoot myself like on a tripod, set up my stand up. You know, it was a lot of work. And I told them, I can edit circles around a lot of my friends. I, I can shoot anything. Um, I can produce. I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and call some people and set things up. And I can do all the, the physical work that you're asking for, but I'm also a clean slate. I don't have any bad habits. You know, I don't have, uh, I'm not coming from a job where I was a certain mold and it's going to be hard for me to get out of that, those, those habits in that mold. Like I'm a clean slate, so hire me. <laughs> and that's how and it's kind of worked out um yeah yeah no that, that makes it, sense it was a, that's awesome um so what are what are some of the the biggest stories like what are, let's let's just say like the the first three biggest stories that you've covered that come to your mind and i know you've done a lot but and that's that's probably difficult but you know in your eyes yeah what it's, are, a, it's a tough question you know because gosh for inside edition especially we work so hard every day and then it's almost like the next day happens and you're like, what am I working on today? And you're like, I can't even remember what I did yesterday. What, what story did I have on the show yesterday? Or people would call me and say, yeah, I saw that story you did about the dog rescue. I'm like, man, I don't even remember that because I'm working on something else now. Um, but what comes to mind, the hurricane um, a couple years ago, I guess that was last year in, or it was 2018 in Florida, Hurricane Michael down there. Uh, we did a lot of work down there. That was um, eye-opening to see. Uh, you know, you hear the phrase, oh, it looks like a bomb went off. It looks like a buzzsaw came through. And man, that could not be more true um, in some of these areas in Florida that we saw. So that was one. <sighs> Seeing up close was really, really, it was heartbreaking. Um, that, I would say, when I went to Juarez in 2009 which was the height of the drug war um went down there for channel one that was extremely dangerous um just scary just scary stuff and and, and bringing back some of the visuals that we brought back into for that story um that was important uh i also covered the olympics for channel one um in 2010 in vancouver that was wild because we were there for like the entire games so it was like three and a half weeks me and me and uh one producer shooter just the two of us we were a two-man team and we were producing like a third of the show every day from vancouver um and we're just really working our tails off uh at a young age 
that's something that I always remember. And then I'm trying to think of for it. Oh, there's something else for inside edition, man. Uh, obviously I covered the 2016 election. Um, I was all over the place back then at all the debates and you know, that, that famous moment, um, from the first GOP debate in 2016, the run-up of 2016 in Cleveland. Everybody goes back. If you've seen the movie Bombshell, the Fox News movie, did you see that one? No, I actually haven't seen that. They they touch on that famous moment between Trump and Megyn Kelly um, from the debate stage. Oh, okay. And yeah. that was like really, if you remember that moment, it's when they sort of had yeah. had a tiff on screen and then he went off to say all the things about her and it was just a whirlwind. I mean, I was there. I was in the I was in the arena. I was in the Wall Street Journal the next day and there was a picture of me holding my mic in Donald Trump's face after that debate. We our camera like we were the first people to kind of get him after that debate and that was such a huge moment for for politics for our country. It was kind of a moment where it, 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 things were never the same. Or we kind of were like, okay, it's not going to be the same going forward, I feel right. like. Right. Um, and that has, that has proven to be true um, throughout these past four. I mean, look, the face of politics has really kind of changed. Um, and that moment goes down in history. And then seeing it on the movie, seeing, on, seeing it on this movie with all these wonderful – huge named actor Charlize Theron uh, and whoever else I'm like oh man it was crazy like I was there I was in that room that they're in right now on this movie it was pretty wild yes yeah that must be you know weird to, to see that yeah and, and pretty pretty huge moment um, especially knowing what we what we know now about that moment as a, uh, a shift you know a, a real like inflection point or, or whatnot you know a big uh, such a huge moment um at yeah. the time, you know, we, we didn't really know what would, would come after that. Um, what would you, so do you work with um, the same, do you work with a photographer, I'm assuming, like when you go, when you go out to Connecticut, say for this uh, Jennifer Dulos and, and, you know, her husband recently basically killed himself. Um, when you go out there for that story, do you, you know, are you traveling in an SUV? Is it a crew of just you and a photographer or is there also a producer and a lighting person or sound guy? No, or you know, it's so, Anything that's in the New York area, and in Connecticut really is the New York area, we'll take our own guys. We have you know, a handful of full-time photographers and sound people. We always have a sound person too. Um, so like going up to Connecticut, it's usually just me, the cameraman, uh, an audio person, and maybe like an AP, like an uh, associate producer. Most of the time it's just me, and most of the time I'm not traveling with a producer. And they will also send our, our regular full-time crews out to like DC with me when I'm covering the impeachment or if it's a story where we really need to make sure we're coming back with perfect video. Like if it's somebody we've been working on booking for months and whatever, we'll take our own guys. Cause our guys are great. They know exactly what we're looking for. Exactly. Just the, the style of shooting that our boss is like, and that sort of fits the inside edition mold. We'll take our own guys. But then there are times where They'll send me, say, to like Louisville, Kentucky for something, and we'll hire a, fr a freelance crew in those cities. So I'll sort of fly solo, travel solo, meet up with the freelance crew, and just work with them for a day or two. And that, that's always kind of funny because there was a guy I worked with recently, I forget where we were, in Ohio. I think I was in 
Columbus, Ohio. And like, I hadn't seen him for like four years. <laughs> I was like, Oh, Hey, we're working together again. So it's kind of nice to, to have friends all around the city uh, or all around the country that you see every now and then we have great crews in Florida and um, down, down South in Texas. So it's a mix. They're, they're sort of sending our own guys more often now because I think they're realizing there is such value in the, the, the level of trust that we have with our, with our camera guys um, and knowing that like, they're not going to miss something, especially if it's a breaking story and we're out in the field, like kind of reactively shooting what's happening around us. Those guys are the best. So, but it is a mixed bag. Sometimes I'm with freelance crews. Sometimes I'm with my own people, but rarely am I with a producer. I mean, I'm sort of my own producer most of the time out in the field. Yeah. But I'll be working. How our show sort of works is that I'll be working with a producer who's back in the office, who's writing. So like for the impeach, I'm just using that since it was recent. I'm gathering material with my crew in Washington, feeding stuff back using a live view, maybe shooting a stand up, telling them what I shot, interviewing senators, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's like somebody back in New York who's working on a larger script that all my stuff will go, go into. And then like, they'll send me the script and we'll kind of work together on, on that. Um, Cause a lot of times I'm, I'm just, cultivating stuff in the field and grabbing stuff in the field. And I don't necessarily know the angle or the story that we're producing in New York. And they're kind of figuring that out as I'm shooting. So I can't really sit down and stop what I'm doing and pump out a whole script because I have to be like doing the stuff. I have to be shooting the stuff and asking the questions and being uh, on camera. So, someone, so, so, so it's like a team effort. Yeah. So, so I mean, so, sorry, I, I may have missed exactly what you, so you said someone back in New York will, will pretty much write the script for you based on what you've gathered and like some phone calls of your vision or that, or is that kind of how that works? And then you'll. Yeah. Yes. It's a, it's a collaborative sort of thing, right? Like I'm not writing a full script from the field and sending it back. I might be writing a stand up or writing this or writing that and sending, sending it back. But there is somebody who's like pumping out the full script back in New York because they're gathering other elements there too. They're gathering moments from television or, here's when what the view said about this or here's what yeah. uh, there was a moment from an NBC piece we can kind of pull all those other sources into one big piece and then our our executive producer Charles he sits down and reads every word of every script and makes his changes so the producer has to then sit with him and go through the script and all of that so I can't be there for that the correspondence at Inside Edition there's so few of us there's only like there's two full-time correspondents in New York there's two freelancers or um, two, two part-time people in New York and we are just pulled in so, so many directions. Like Friday, I think I shot four interviews for four different stories that I don't have time to sit there and, and write out a full script for, for a particular story. Cause I'm probably shooting four or five different things every day. Um, so it, it's a team effort, how that all comes together where and it's different. Whereas like in local news, I'm sure you're, you know, out there covering whatever happened, writing the script from the truck or whatever and sending it. I'm, that's probably how that works. It's, yeah. It's much different. Yeah. At Inside Edition. It's and, definitely and when, like a team. When you have to record your voice for the, the final script, are you, are you just doing that inside of a hallway or a car? Or how are you doing that? Very interesting. So obviously when we're in the, when we're in the office, you know, it's in the booth, we have a, you know, sound booth, yeah. whatever. I used to be very bothered at Inside Edition when I first started 
that our correspondence would not track from the field. And I raised this concern. I was really upset about it because I'm like, what do you mean? I'm the one out here covering this story. I'm sending back interviews and stand-ups, whatever. Someone else's voice is on the story and then suddenly goes, here's Stephen Fabian in Washington. And it comes to me and I'll do a stand-up and then it goes back to like stuff I shot with someone else's voice on it. You're kind of like, wait a second. Yeah. This is my story. So they were doing that for a long time. In the past couple of years, I helped in implementing a system for us, for the reporters to be able to track from the field. I actually use this little device called an iRig and it connects to my iPhone. An XLR cable um, goes from, from the device to a microphone. And then it's all like, so it goes mic cable to the iRig device to my phone. And yeah, I will be in a hallway or a small room with a jacket over my head, <laughs> um, kind of creating a little sound booth. But what's nice about the iRig is it filters out a lot of the other background noise and stuff and creates a pretty clean uh, audio sound, which is nice. And I'll send that back as like a file that will get put into our system uh, in New York. And that, that system, this process seems to be working. So I'm happy now because, <laughs> because now it's not someone else's voice on the story that I shot all day and I just suddenly pop up and do a stand-up. It's a little, I have a little bit more ownership over it now. Which yeah. Yeah. That's a good, a good change to implement. That's good that you pushed for that. I think, um, for sure. Um, for sure. Um, so what do you, what would you say is the, is the single most difficult part of, of your job at this point? I mean, the deadline's crazy. It really, I mean, a lot of times I don't get my story assignment until noon or I, I don't necessarily know what I'm shooting until noon or seconds before, like I, like I described earlier. Um, meeting that deadline is, is tricky for sure. It's a lot of, I always use this analogy. It's like, it's like when firefighters, and I'm not comparing what we do to firefighters, they're much braver and tougher people. Um, but similarly, it's like sitting around a firehouse and you're waiting. And then the bell goes off and you have to fly and just, just book it and get this done as quick as possible. That is, um, that's a tricky, tricky thing. You kind of have to be ready for anything <laughs> because, and, and because we also cover everything under the sun, you kind of also have to have a little bit of a knowledge of what's going on. All the stories that are happening, you kind of need to just know a little bit about everything because, you know, I don't know what I'm going to be doing tomorrow at 9 a.m. I could be in another city. I could be face to face with, you know, some important interview. I could be, you know, I just don't know. So it's being prepared. It's being ready to jump when that alarm bell goes off. It is is tough and just, you know, being ready. I, we were in D.C. for for the impeachment, and it was this was a while back. I remember I woke up, I was in DC. They weren't sure if they were going to keep me. They decided, Oh, here's what we'd like you to do today. Um, see if you can go get a moment with Congresswoman Dingle. Do you remember this story where Donald Trump said some things about uh, Congresswoman Dingle's late husband oh, yes. who was yeah, a congressman? Yeah. Right. Yep. So uh, that was sort of the big story overnight. So they said, go see if you can maybe inter- get an interview with her. 
And I said, okay. So me and my crew, we went over to the, uh, the house representatives building where she, her office is. We were outside her office for, I'm telling you 40 seconds. We didn't even have our gear set up yet. And suddenly she appeared. I introduced myself. I asked if we could get a couple questions with her. Once she, she said like, okay, my audio guy hands me my mic. We get like three questions with her. Wonderful. Cause that's the kind of story we wanted to do that day. So we're, we're like, great. It was like eight in the morning. We had already shot something that's totally usable for today's show. I had shot stand-ups the night before that were sort of would live for, for that day's show. So I'm thinking like, hmm, we already kind of have a story in the can for today. This is nice. At 1.30, they decided, we don't like your stand-ups from last night. We want you to go gather all the major newspapers, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the uh, Wall Street Journal, and the New York Post, which is hard to find in Washington, D.C., yeah. and you're going to do a stand-up with the Capitol in the background talking about the different headlines from the impeachment hearings that were ongoing or whatever. The only place you can really find the New York Post is at, the, is at Union Station in D.C. So now at 1.30, we are flying around D.C. after we had like shot that interview in the morning and kind of, kind of didn't do much the rest of the day. Right. We're like, crap, we have 90 minutes to go gather these newspapers, get to Union Station, um, fly around, set up this shot and do this stand up. And I remember by the time we got to union station, it was like two 30. I went inside, found the, found the New York post, found all the other newspapers came out. My crew was setting up at like two 50. We turned the live view on. I did the stand up, set it back at two 53 or something, seven minutes before our deadline. Um, and it made air. And then we got on the train and went back to New York. <laughs> so it's wow. like, yeah, it's hard to, you can't really plan because you just don't know what's going to happen and you kind of yeah. just have to react to whatever maybe they're deciding in New York or whatever you end up shooting. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work really fast for a short, short burst. And then maybe you sit there for a little bit, then you work again really fast. It's just a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, it's a frenzy. It's a frenzy yeah. every day. Don't, don't you kind of hate those moments in some regard, but then also sort of love them like that adrenaline rush. And it just, uh, you know, there yeah. were moments like that in yeah. local as well. And you just like, whenever you're grabbing those newspapers and hopping back in the car and I almost always felt like a spy or something, or like someone who had this like really important mission. Um, yeah. Yeah. It know, is. It's, it's, it's a rush it's getting it done. You're like, ah, oh, and then we, we freaking did it. And you're like, Oh, we did it. It was great. You know, and then you just move on to the next thing. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever missed the deadline? Uh, I don't even, I can't, there's not like a real notable one that sticks out to me. I mean, there were times, there are times for, for inside edition because we do a refeed at like four thirty, where the boss will make some changes to mm -hmm. scripts and stuff. And there will be times where maybe something doesn't make it for the three o'clock show. And we're like, we're just not going to make it for three, but we'll make it for four thirty. That happens from time to time. But not really. No, no. We usually make it. That's the crazy thing. It's like we get these crazy assignments and we got to run around, but we always, we always get it done. And so that's why we keep getting asked to do these crazy things and get them done quickly because the staff there is so good at doing their job and doing it in a timely manner and getting things done quickly. Yeah. That, absolutely. you know, the yeah. asks keep coming. <laughs> Um, and, uh, just, add, we'll, we'll kind of work towards a close here, wrap up now. Um, 
you know, for young journalists, I always think, you know, it's important to, to try to help them or, or provide whatever advice we can if, if we're, you know, a little bit older. And, um, you know, if someone's coming out of college now and, and, and went to an Allegheny college or, or, or what have you, and they're, they, they, they would love to be on TV, but they're not kind of sure what route to take. Any advice for, yeah. for someone who's, you know, 21 or 22 and, and just coming out? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I tell this to our interns in the office all the time. I don't care really what job you want to do. If you want to be a producer, if you want to be an editor, if you want to be a camera person, if you want to be a reporter, know how to do all those things. You know, know how to shoot, know how to write, know how to produce, know how to edit, learn an editing system, learn Avid, learn Final Cut. Um, because the industry is shrinking and they want people to be able to do as many jobs as possible. I would have never got that job at Channel One if I didn't know how to edit, write, shoot, produce. So even if you want to just be, oh, I just want to be on air, I just want to be a host, I want to be a reporter. No, you need to learn all these other skills because that makes you more marketable. That makes you easier to work with because you know what the cameraman's looking for. You know what the editor is looking for. You know how to find a good soundbite. You know how to work with a producer. You know, knowing a little bit about how to do all the jobs makes your life easier. It makes the people's lives around you easier too. It makes you easier to work with. So don't pigeonhole yourself by saying, oh, I just want to be an editor. I just want to, you know, you got to know, even if you have no aspirations of being in front of the camera, Make yourself do it just to then know what it's like. And then when you would say you're a producer and you're working with an on-air person, you can work with them easier. You know, it's just cast a wide net, gather as many skills as you can um, because they're all valuable skills. And wherever you end up, whichever specific job you end up doing, you'll still use those that base knowledge uh, of skills from those other sort of positions to help you advance and help you get your job done every day. Yeah, absolutely. That's great advice for sure. And very helpful. I've had the similar experience where uh, some of those skills really can propel you to the the top of the pile, you know, with the resume, so to speak. Um, and it's just right. it can give you more confidence as well, too, when you're in a certain situation. Um, so those, how about those, uh, those two stories that you had to submit for, you know, on a tight deadline for, um, the interview with with uh, Channel One News, you know, way back in the day, are those do those still live somewhere on YouTube? Is there any? Is there? Yep. Is, is, could we watch those? Is there any chance that uh, people could find? Yeah, them? they 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 do they do still live on YouTube somewhere. They're probably like I uploaded them and probably set them to private or whatever. But I could yeah. dig them up. Man, they're funny. One was about interactive video games and whether or not they could actually be a form of exercise for young people. Like this was when dance dance revolution was, was, um, big and the, we had just come out, you know, so we, I did a story about like, I interviewed like a, a trainer and a gym teacher and talked about kids exercising. Cause it was also like a heat wave and I tied it into to the heat wave when it's too hot to work out outside. Here's some things you could do indoors, but are these really forms of exercise? That was interesting. And then the other piece I did, I keep bringing up the baby clothes store. My friend um, was a professional soccer player in Philadelphia, but he, it was he and his wife who were running the baby clothes store. So I did this sort of feature piece about him. He's this guy who everybody knows. Um, 
diving around the soccer field in, in Philadelphia, you know, playing in front of thousands of people, blah, blah, blah. But here's his day job. And here he's folding baby clothes, you know, and it was sort of this uh, interesting look at a guy who you'd think like, because they weren't making tons of money playing professional indoor soccer. You know, you'd think he's, oh, he's a pro athlete. He's, he's, you know, set, but not exactly. Here he is. He's, you know, folding baby clothes and selling strollers during the day. Yeah. Um, so they worked out. They, they sort of liked them. I yeah. mean, got me the job. So yeah, that's awesome. I, I just love seeing people's like early work and then comparing it, you know, to their, to their current stuff. And I think like it can be, inspiring. yeah, I'll dig them up. I'll dig them up and see if I can yeah. send them to you. We'll, sure. we'll do like a, uh, I'll post like a show notes, which are some links to things you've mentioned. Um, so that'd be perfect. I can include them there if you just email them to me. Awesome. All right. Well, cool. um, if people want to find you on the internet now on social media, you know, what are your, what are your handles? And if people want to watch you on inside edition and, and they're not, uh, not 14 and, and don't want to watch on YouTube, you know, what, what, what time are you typically on? Yeah. I mean, I would say check your local listings because we do air in different times, uh, in different markets across the country. We are mostly like in that prime time, seven o'clock, uh, time slot, but there are some markets where like four 30, five 30, six 30. But if you go to insideedition.com, there is a where to watch link and it will tell you where in your city, uh, where and when we air uh, Instagram, Twitter is at Stephen Fabian TV. And my Facebook page is also the same Stephen Fabian TV. I am, you know, on a constant quest to keep doing more on social media. I haven't quite cracked the code yet, but, um, I think we're all, we're all working on that. <laughs> but yeah. Stephen Fabian TV is basically the same handle for everything. Cool. All right. Well, Stephen, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Very cool to hear your perspective um, from, you know, the world of, of Inside Edition and uh, everything that you do there. Um, definitely would like to uh, chop it up a little bit more about Pittsburgh, but, you know, don't want to make it too uh, insular or, you know, esoteric for people who, who aren't from Pittsburgh, but uh, someday yeah, we'll have yeah, to... Yeah, we could go. That could be a whole other episode. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Reporter Podcast with Bo Berman. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.